this is my own personal prejudice, but I believe he's one of the best Bible teachers that I've heard in a long time. I'm embarrassing him, so he's taking his time to come up. <laughs> but uh, we're very fortunate to have Tim with us this morning and just to be speaking again from the book of Daniel, speaking God's word to us. So let's just pray for Tim. Father, we just thank you for uh, just who Tim is to us, Lord, not just a great Bible teacher, but just a wonderful brother in Christ and a wonderful friend. And we just ask you to bless and anoint his words to us and help us, Lord, to really take hold of what you want to speak to each one of us individually. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for your kind words. I once heard that flattery is a bit like smoking. It's only dangerous when you inhale. Uh, very kind of you to say so, Harry. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, if you are here for the first time, we're in the, coming to the end today of a series called Homeless uh, from the book of Daniel. And we're going to read from the book of Daniel. If you've got Bibles, you might like to turn to it, chapter 6. If you haven't, don't worry. Words will come up on the screen. Uh, and it's, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's quite a lengthy chapter, but hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it. It's a story that many of us will know if we've been around church at all in our story. You will know this story, perhaps. Uh, but it's a good one, and we're going to draw out some interesting, hopefully, perspectives on it. So Daniel chapter 6. And you'll remember the context. Daniel and his friends are not at home. Their home, Jerusalem, uh, it has been ransacked, has been overtaken. They are a long, long way from home. They are in Babylon. And they are in Babylon, which is both the enemy literally for them, but of course represents being a long way from home, metaphorically, spiritually. And of course, for us today, whether we feel at home in our house, in our workplace, in our family, in our city, in our nation, in this world. This is a story about what it means to follow God when you don't feel at home, when you're aching, longing to find that true home. So let's read this famous story, Daniel chapter 6, about the king Darius. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. I always think, by the way, what well, great job title. What are you? I'm a satrap. Anyway, better than being a mousetrap. With three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Remember, he is an outsider in this nation. They don't like him. But they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. He was so faultless that the only way they could find fault is through his belief system. So these chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever, buttering him up, flattery. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, 
shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes, the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so surprise, surprise, for any ruler that likes the sound of his own voice, so King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, I love this, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem and prayed that God would rescue him from this terrible situation. That's not what it says. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Then, these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king, spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they sent to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still pay, prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. We'll cast, go on a few verses because they have this bit of dialogue and where basically they can't do it. Verse 19, if you can flip forward to that. At the first light, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. May my God send his angel. And he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. And at the king's command, the men who'd falsely accused Daniel were brought in, thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues. He saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. May God bless this passage to us. So we've got a weighty subject this morning. And there's a simple question for all of us, and it's this. Does what you believe enable you to deal with the reality of suffering? How do you live with suffering? I think you can argue, with good background, that every philosophy, most religious systems have this question at their core. 
once you strip away everything, does what you believe enable you to cope, to thrive, to flourish with the reality of pain, hardship, suffering in this life? How do you live with suffering? And does what you believe, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not, help you with that? Because the reality is, many of us are suffering. If we aren't at the moment, we will do, and we probably have already. Suffering is real. And broadly speaking, there are five different approaches to suffering, five different ways that people deal with it. And the first is this. They deal with the reality of suffering by deciding that there can be no God. There is no higher purpose. And so we deal with suffering however best we can. That is the view of an atheist. There is no God, they believe. And so therefore to cope, well, there can't be a God and we just have to get our heads down. That's one way to deal with it. A second way to deal with this reality of human suffering is well, is not necessarily that there's no God, but actually there's no reality of suffering. That it's just an illusion. Or, or a modern equivalent of that, that we just stick our fingers in our ears going la, 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 and live our lives of comfort, ignoring the vast majority of the world who, for whom their daily existence is hard. So we have packaged meat in supermarkets because we can't bear the reality that animals had to suffer for our food. We live removed from suffering, trying to distance ourselves, escape from it, just think happy thoughts, nice thoughts. Mm. And it leads, of course, to huge issues down the line when the reality of suffering impacts us. So some say there's no God. Some say there's no suffering. A third approach to suffering is, of course, this, try to escape it. And so therefore, the, the, some people might say, by faithful devotion to a God, you might minimize suffering. If you're good, your God will see you right, type thing. So we escape it. And of course, a modern equivalent of that is anything to excess that just blurs our minds a little bit away from the hard reality of human existence, whether that be drink, drugs, sex, relationships, jobs, career, house, whatever it is. We try to escape it. Fourth approach is this. We decide that suffering is just fate. C'est la vie. And we endure whatever is thrown at us. There's a religious, adver religious version to that that... If suffering, if you like, is a test and we just have to endure it, submit a willingness to endure whatever your God throws at you. And of course, there's a modern sort of godless version as well, which is suffering is a chance for you to test what your metal is like. No pain without gain. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger and all of that. Fate. Well, I want to suggest that many of us adopt various elements of all of those four. But I think there is a very different way, the fifth approach, which I think is the Christian approach, the biblical approach. And hopefully from Daniel's story, you might get some snapshots that maybe just maybe show us that the way that the Bible handles suffering is completely different. And this morning, if we are in the middle of suffering right now, and I know some of us are, 
we may not have all our questions answered. But I would argue that the biblical reality, the biblical view of suffering is more honest about suffering, more hope-filled about suffering, and more helpful within suffering. It's completely unlike any of those other perspectives. And if we grasp it, it profoundly changes everything, even if your life is horrible right now. And some of the verses at the end of chapter 6 of Daniel will really help us, and we'll keep coming back to them. When the king, after seeing what God has done, declares to the whole planet, he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues, he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So I want to argue from this chapter, there's three perspectives on suffering that the Bible gives to us, which I think profoundly help you now or whenever the hardship, the reality of suffering comes. So that we might be homeless, uh, but fearless. And the first is this. Biblical faith can lead to suffering. Now, this is, may not be the most encouraging place to start. Thanks, Tim. But the reality in those pages of Daniel are very clear. There is a rule set up by the king who's tricked by those close advisors, tricked to basically getting at Daniel who is this amazing character who lives just with his trust in Christ, in God, and therefore serves honestly, trustworthily in his new place to live. And so he makes this decree that anyone that prays to any God over the next 30 days will be thrown to the lions. And I love what happens in verse 7. Verse 8, sorry. Now, your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. Verse 9, so King Darius put the decree in writing. It's public. It's out there. Daniel knew what was going to happen. And verse 10 is so helpful for us. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he's done before. Daniel knew what the consequences were and still prayed. He knew that this would lead to the lion's den, and yet he still was faithful to his God. Not many people tell you this, and if you are new to the Christian faith, I'm sorry if nobody has said this before, but I'm going to break you some bad news. There's good news coming. Please don't leave just now. But the reality is this, some suffering in life is unique to Christians. Daniel could have escaped the lion's den by not praying. He just could. And there are millions of people around the planet right now who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. And they could avoid that suffering by stop being Christians. 
And yet our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for their faith, we pray from our relative comfort, Lord, take away their persecution. They don't pray that. They pray, Lord, in the middle of this persecution, can we stay faithful? There's an easy way to avoid the kind of persecution, the kind of suffering that comes from persecution, and that's to simply stop following Jesus. And yet, our brothers and sisters show us a different path. And why is that important for us to remember? Well, his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end, even though the horrors right now seem to put that in doubt. Now, can I say, because his kingdom will never end, his dominion will never end, other kingdoms are vying for competition. And therefore, there will always be opposing views, opposition, that do not want his kingdom to reign. Now, can I say, therefore, if you're a follower of Christ... The reason we wanted to go here at the beginning is this. If we follow Christ, we walk where Jesus walked. Where did Jesus walk to? He walked to the cross. And when Jesus calls his followers to carry their cross, that wasn't just some nice phrase to put on your fridge. Actually, there is some suffering in life that is as a result of following Christ. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. And that might not be literally for us today in the comfort of our Western world. But for many of us choosing to put ourselves second, choosing to die to our own comfort, choosing to sacrifice for the sake of others and for the sake of Christ is painful sometimes. And the reason I say this is that some of us have become followers of Jesus, if we're honest, because we're expecting or even we've been promised a life of comfort and ease. That Jesus will take away our suffering. So we love the preachers who promise a life of adventure and prosperity. We flock to the churches that promise an extraordinary life of joy and fulfilling your dreams. We soak in the seductive promises of life without trial. And then when trial does come, well, we either blame God or we blame ourselves because it's surely to do with our own deficient faith. And so we're either overwhelmed with guilt or with anger. And yet while all that goes on, there are those nagging voices echoing throughout history of the people in the pages of the scriptures and the people throughout church history who said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Suffering, friends, is normal for followers of Christ throughout history and even in the planet now. It's us in our little Western comfortable bubble. We presume we've got it normal. We haven't. Let me read to you some shocking words, but I think profoundly helpful words. From a book by a, uh, a professor of philosophy and theology called Nicholas Walterstorff. wrote a beautiful book called Lament for a Son, which is, if you like, a poetic reflection when his son died. Listen to these words carefully. How is faith to endure, O God? 
when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us. You've allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You've allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you've not abandoned us, explain yourself, he says. And then these beautiful words. We strain to hear, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. A new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? Friends, as Zach Eswine said, in this sad world, sadness is an act of sanity. Our tears, the testimony of the sane. So that's the first reality. The second is this. If we can go back one, here we go. Biblical faith can lead to some suffering. Now that's not saying that all suffering, if you're a Christian, is because of your faith in Christ. It's not. But the second reality is this. Biblical faith gives hope in suffering. Verse 10, I love it. Let me revisit it again. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he'd done before. God doesn't stop being God, even though the reality of suffering and pain is very obvious. And then we skip forward. Verse 27. God rescues, God saves, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Confidence in the middle of it all. Now there are honest questions about why suffering happens. And as we said earlier, this is the reality of suffering has caused some to just put aside God. You remember a few years ago in London, the famous bus campaign. I don't know if you ever, anyone actually saw these buses, which were basically a campaign to basically say, we don't believe in God and therefore we think others shouldn't believe in God as well. With this famous slogan, there's probably no God, no God. now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Do you notice something there? Very obvious, very real. You can only really say that if life is good. <laughs> you can only really say that from a position of middle-class Western comfort. As one author famously said, when the atheist bus comes by and tells you that there's probably no God, so you should stop worrying and enjoy your life, the slogan is not just bitterly inappropriate in mood. What it means, if it's true, is that anyone who isn't enjoying themselves is on their own entirely. Let's be clear about the logic of the message. It amounts to a denial of hope or consolation on any but the most chirpy, squeaky, bubblegummy reading of the human situation. St. Augustine called this kind of thing cruel optimism 1,500 years ago, and it's still cruel now. The beauty of Daniel is this. Suffering is real. The possibility of suffering is real. And yet God doesn't stop being God in the middle of it. 
so that he's even able, facing suffering, to be thankful to God, faced even with death. Why? Well, God is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. And if God is the living God, if his kingdom is the kingdom that will never be destroyed, if his dominion will never end, then maybe, just maybe, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And the things that we understand may be a bit different from how he sees the whole of human history. Can I say something very personal about this? Many of you will know that a few years ago, um, a couple of years ago, my wife Claire was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember being in the consultant room as the words, the diagnosis was given. Uh, some of you know what that feels like when the dreaded C word is mentioned and it all goes blurry. One of the first things Claire said to me when we walked out of that room, and this shows you the measure of my wife, she said, well, that's another thing God wants us to cope with. And in a strange way, that real, raw, earthy comment gave us the most profound hope. Because if God is even here, then there is always hope. If there is no God, there is no hope. You're on your own. And of course, other religious systems put the responsibility back onto us. That we have to rise above it somehow. And just knuckle down and endure. Or think of it as an illusion and try and sort of wistfully meditate our way out of it. And of course, if the suffering is our fault, it leads to overwhelming guilt and shame. Well, let me read from the same verse, a book, uh, same passage from a book called Unapologetic, which I commend to you. Very refreshing, if very, very profound, if not very controversial book. In which the author, from a very different perspective, says this. How do we deal with suffering? How do we resolve the contradiction between the cruel world and a loving God? The short answer is that we don't. We don't even try to, mostly. Most Christian believers don't spend their time and their emotional energy stuck at this point. Most of us worrying about it turns out to have been a phase in the early history of our belief. The questions suffering proves to be one of those questions which is replaced by other questions. We move on from it without abolishing the mystery. And even in bad times, we don't usually go back there. We take the cruelties of this world as a given, as the known and familiar data. And instead of anguishing about why the world is as it is, we look for comfort or cope with it. We don't ask for a creator who can explain himself. We ask for a friend in time of grief. And then he says this, which I found immensely encouraging, but it is very provocative. If your child is dying, there is no reason that can ease your sorrow. Even if impossibly some true and sufficient explanation could be given you, it wouldn't help. The only comfort that can do anything 
is the comfort of feeling yourself loved. Given the cruel world, it's a love song we need to help us bear what we must. And that's why when we, unlike Daniel, view the biblical story through the lens of Christ, we have a very different picture. Because we see the God who weeps. We see the God who is on his own. We see the God who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the one who endured the most horrific suffering out of choice for those he loves. And so for us, in the middle of suffering, we're able to say, yes, God is God. That doesn't mean we know why. But we know that God is for us and he loves us. And so we listen out for that love song that echoes through time. So thirdly and finally, though, Yes, biblical faith gives hope in suffering, but something even more beautiful. Biblical faith points beyond suffering. Do you see verse 26 again? He's the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues, he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. As Aragorn once said, there are sorrows in our lives so great that the tears cannot be wiped away in this world. You see, in the light of the New Testament, we realize that we are really homeless now. As Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we live, dear friends? I urge you as foreigners and exiles, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Because we don't live here. We live for eternity. And so when we look at the cross... We don't only have a saviour who suffers with us and suffers for us. We see that it is an empty cross. That he has suffered beyond. So that we need not fear our greatest enemy, death itself. How do we deal with suffering? Well, we look beyond suffering. For one day, one day. As Francis Spufford said, don't be afraid. Far more can be mended than you know. In Hebrews 11, there's an amazing chapter as we come to a close of the great Bible heroes. The heroes of the faith. The people we look up to and say, yeah, I want to be like that. Whoa. And there's a very, very powerful verse at the end of chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith Yet none of them received what had been promised. That's amazing. So there will be things that we do not see now. And like that list of heroes, all we're called to do is faithfully put our hand in our saviors and say, Jesus, you lead me. For you have the words of eternal life. Can I say, in the hospital room, in the consultant's room, 
in the overwhelming burden of depression, in the overwhelming strain of fractured relationships, to know that one day, one day, there will no more, be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is good news. That is a profoundly different perspective on suffering. So may we be people who, like the heroes of Scripture, like Daniel himself, are able to say, I will continue to be faithful, come what may.